If you have your Bible, <clears throat> we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And most times when you come to church, most times when you're talking about sin, it's usually always aimed at the sinner, like at the blow it case, the person that's run off, you're talking to the sinner and their need to repent and their need to change. Like there's the prodigal son story. The prodigal son story is aimed at the younger brother who's run off and lived a life full of debauchery, who's living outside of covenant relationship with the Lord and who needs to come home. He's been sleeping around, he's been getting high, he's been getting drunk and he needs to come home. So that's the the message of sin is aimed at the sinner. Hey, you need to repent. You need to change. And then on the other side of that same story, you have the older brother, the older brother who's lived a super moral life, who's slaved for God, who's, who's always tried to do everything right. Those who think they've earned a, a, a God's favor and blessing on their life. And they hate to see the younger brother get welcomed in because they feel like they deserve it. There's the, those two sides that we've often talked about that the story basically comes to we all desperately need Jesus, regardless of our upbringing or our past, that we're all broken, that we all desperately need the Father to greet us with open arms, with grace, full of everything that we do not deserve, everything we have not earned. And so that's how we generally talk about sin. We generally talk about sin as um, it's aimed at the sinner. We establish the wages of sin is death, that we've all sinned. We're all deserving of death. Being really moral won't save you. Being really good won't save you. Your good deeds aren't going to outweigh your bad deeds. But Jesus, the creator God, the God over all, that all things were made through him, by him, and for him, that he was not lacking anything in all of eternity. He chose to set aside his crown to come and live life as a human, be tempted in every single way, yet without sin, be a servant, give his life for all. He's risen, ascended, and seating at the right hand of the throne of God, and now empowered by the Holy Spirit, you and I get to set aside the old man with all of our old habits, our old issues, our old desires, and we have the option to take on the new man with new passions, new desires, new hobbies, the, way, the life that Jesus would live on earth, we're supposed to emulate and be living every single day. So that's generally, when we talk about sin, that's the direction that we're going with. This chapter is not aimed at the individual struggling, struggling with sin. It's a really fascinating chapter. It's aimed at the church who has a really big, bad, nasty problem. There's a big problem in the church. And so it's, it's, how corporately as a church are you supposed to handle problems that arise in your church similar to this? That what are you, how are you supposed to navigate when there's big issues that come up in the church, even with people who are really well-known, people who are really well-established? How do you handle this? How do you walk this through? And so this chapter is not Normally, how we talk about sin, it's directed at the congregation. And so there's two types of sinners after you come to Jesus. There's the celebrating sinner, and there's the suffering, the struggling sinner. This is not aimed at the struggling sinner. The struggling sinner is someone who he <clears throat> struggles, he fails, and he's heartbroken about it. He's bummed out about it. He goes, God, I don't like how that controls me. I don't like how that owns me. I don't like how that gives a foothold for the enemy. God, will you relieve me from it? And he's repentant. He's trying to change direction. He still struggles and he's, he's heartbroken by it. 
This is the celebrating sinner. This is the one who says, well, I'm the exception to the rule, that it's okay if I do it. It might not be okay for other people, but it's okay for me. My thing is, this is how God made me. God is a God of grace and love and acceptance and tolerance. And so I can live however the way I want, and God's cool with it. This is to that person. This is where we redefine what sin is based on culture or based on ourselves. Like, hey, if, if these group of people, if culturally we've all accepted this is okay, it's just the people in the Bible didn't know that this was okay, but it's actually okay now. No, God said that's not okay. That's not how we're going to live. That's not how we're going to do life. So the content in it is pretty heavy. If you have kids, you should check them into the kids' wing. Fair warning. <clears throat> this is the two things that we're going to be focusing on as we look into God's word tonight. This is the repercussions of a church that allows really serious sin to happen and to occur and to be accepted and allowed. This is the repercussions that's going to happen in the church that lets that happen. And then the responsibility of the church when there is a celebrating sinner of what, what is the church supposed to do? So it's 13 verses. It's really quick, like the way that Paul jumps into it and tackles this, pro, this problem is almost like just ripping off a Band-Aid. And I, I like to think about it like this, like, okay, so Paul wrote this letter. This letter was delivered to the church. The pastor gets this letter. Hey, we got a letter from Paul. Paul's our buddy. We all know Paul. And so then they just read it for church one day. Like they just busted through it. And if you know the contents of this chapter we're gonna read, I imagine that person was there that day. And you just think, uh-oh, like, this is so uncomfortable right now. So here it is. Let's just read the, the 13 verses, and then we'll, we'll go through it. But that's how I picture it. Like, they just, hey, okay, guys, we're going to read. Paul wrote something. And uh-oh. Uh so here's how it's, it reads. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone 
who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Just imagine the dude's in church. Ouch. That seems really harsh. Well, let's go through it. So it's just swift, right? So verse one, here's what Paul says. It's actually reported. Hey, I'm getting word about you guys. I'm getting some news from you. Is that the news that I want to get? Hey, those guys in Corinth, they are just taking care of all of the widows. They're building homes for people who can't get into homes. They're caring for, they're feeding all of the poor. They're going out and healing people in the name of Jesus. It's amazing. No, the news that he's getting back is there's some serious issues going on in this church. Tremendous issues. There's sexual immorality among you, which wouldn't really be crazy for Corinth because Corinth was a very sexually immoral city. They had lots of tolerance. They had lots of freedom sexually. They had great pride for sexual activity. They had um, gender confusion. They had promiscuity. They, they had alternative lifestyle parades. They would have bumpers, stickers on the back of their camels with rainbows on it. Like their culture was one that just embraced sex. You, you're sexually free to do whatever you want. And the report that he's getting is there's sexual immorality among them. And sexual immorality is this, this blanket term that covers so many things because Paul knows that people always like to look for a loophole, right? Well, he didn't say I couldn't do that. So sexual immorality, this word he's using is this. God defines marriage as a, one man and one woman, which is crazy, I know. Just hear me out. One man and one woman one flesh for one life. They get, one man and one woman get married and then they are intimate with one another, which is like, whoa, I know. But that's, that's anything outside of that, the Bible uses this word for. It's sexual sin, it's sexual immorality. And there's always the risk of the church being influenced by culture. There's always the, the, the risk of culture coming in and changing the, the way that we see the world. And uh, does, does Jesus work with how the world is pushing the way I see things? No, it never really does. But here's the thing. This church in Corinth doesn't just have the sexual immorality that the city would have been used to. In fact, Paul says it's a kind that's not even tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. <clears throat> so the church is affirming this couple that engages in an intolerant, a alternative lifestyle that even the church of Corinth thinks is reprehensible. If the porn industry thinks that what you're doing is gross, you've gone too far, right? That's what Paul is saying. Even the city you're in, which is known for being too far, like if you were a person who lived a sexual, immoral life, 
Even if you didn't live in Corinth, they would call you a Corinthian as a kind of a slanderous term, right? Everyone is known for this thing. The report I'm getting back from you is that you've taken it even further, that the person, there's a person in your church who has his father's wife. Well, who's his father's wife? Well, it's either his mom or his stepmom. Either way, the church is playing banjo music for worship and it's not okay, right? Like it's Kentucky scary. Like if the woman that you bring to prom, you also call mom, you've stepped over a line. There's something that's happening here that's really not okay. But hey, they're both consenting adults, right? They're both consenting adults. They have freedom to do whatever they want. And because of Jesus, and because of Jesus's grace, it, it, it's all even the better. Jesus's grace covers all. It's all fine. We can do whatever we want because Jesus has accepted us. We have this new life in Jesus. We've been set free from sin so I can live out the life I want to live, right? Isn't that something to be so excited about and be boastful in? Well, here's what Paul says. You're arrogant. You are boasting in that, and you're wrong to do so. Ought you not to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. As Christians, we're called to love one another, right? Culture has redefined what love is to be this unconditional affirmation of someone else. That whatever they say their truth is or whatever journey they're on, that's their journey and they need to live out their truth and they need to live out their authentic life. And if you don't affirm me in that, you don't love me. And if the church adopted that idea of love, we'd be allowing culture to change what we think love is, what we know love to be based on what the Bible says love is. And it, those don't work. So what is, is that what love looks like? that I'm just going to live my journey, I'm gonna do what's best for me, and I'm gonna do whatever makes me happy. Is that what love looks like? Because I tell you what, did the cross make Jesus happy? Was the cross Jesus living his best life now? Was the cross in Jesus's best interest? No, but it's because of the cross, it's by this we know that God has loved us because he sent his son to, to save us. It's that it was against his best interest. It was against him being happy. It was because he put our interests above his own, that he chose us and wanted us despite where we were at, that we know, oh, God loves me. Not because he affirmed me in where I was at and said, you know what, you're fine. You don't actually need a savior. You just gotta live your best journey now, Justin. You just gotta, you're gonna be totally fine on your own. No, he said, I need to get involved. Now I need to do things that are really, really hard to pull him out of the mess that he's gonna constantly get him in. Paul says, you're arrogant and you should be mourning. So here's what has happened. There's this church, there's 50, 60 people. And in it, there's this young man and he's coming in with who everyone in the community kind of knows is his mom. You know, stepmom, mom, whatever, calls her mom. And they always sit right next to each other. You notice they're holding hands during worship, which is okay, it's fine. It's all right, it's not really my thing, hold my mom's hand, but love my mom, just don't hold hands, just my thing. Maybe I need to repent of that, I don't know. Well, then, the, the, you know, they, she kind of rests his head on their shoulder during the teaching, and then everyone sees, hey, did they just kiss? And they're taking communion together, and so one of the pastors says, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? What's happening here? And they explain, oh, we're in a relationship with one another. But it's great because Jesus has forgiven us, that Jesus' grace covers all of this. We've got a new life in Christ, so we're good to go. And the pastor goes, yeah, you make that kind of, I guess. I guess that works. 
you know, I guess that makes sense. And so the pastors all talk about it and they go, this is actually great because we can use this to reach the rest of Corinth. Look at, we're just like you. Jesus is just like you. You can come in just the way that you are. You don't have to change anything. You can just have Jesus as Lord. Does that work? No way. Here's the thing about calling Jesus Lord, which is hard for Americans because we don't have a king, right? We have presidents that we elect and you, know, you can declare that that's not your president and apparently it doesn't apply to you anymore, right? That's just how we do things. But if you had a king, sorry, I shouldn't. If you have a king, kings get to decide everything in your life. They get to decide where your money goes. They get to decide what you can say and what you can't say. They get to decide what activities you get to participate in. They get to decide how, you, how marriage works, who you can marry, who you can't marry, how long you can be married for, what the terms of divorce are. If you have a king, he gets to decide every aspect of your life. When you're calling Jesus Lord, you're saying, what I think the best course of action is doesn't matter anymore. I have to be obedient to my king and what he says, regardless of what culture says. And so what's happened is the church has allowed this. They said, you know, it's fine. It's just one couple. And then they accepted it and they used it as a way to preach aspects of Jesus' grace. And Jesus says, and Paul says, no, that's not what we're going to do. Because here's the thing, whatever you allow will eventually become accepted. In your home or in culture, you've seen whatever we allow to have happen is going to become accepted. Have you seen that happen? So here's the thing. I've got two pictures. Here's one thing in the 70s and in the 80s we allowed. We said it is totally okay and it is permissible and it is fine for this photo right here, the first one with Barbara Streisand. Do you have it? No? It's a really heavy chapter, and so I had a funny thing. So let me just describe it. Oh, here it is. We allowed the perm. We said, this is great. How many women look back and say, what was I thinking? But we allowed it. It became accepted. And look at what happened. Go to the next slide. Adult men. This is just what culture looks like, man. This is... I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> Ought you not be, should you be mourning when you see this? Paul would say. That's a dumb example, but whatever we allow culturally or in our church, eventually it's going to be accepted. That's just how it is. Look at how culture views this. Try before you buy. Would you ever buy a vehicle without taking it on a test drive? No, that's crazy, right? And when you buy a vehicle, you're making a pretty large commitment. It's going to cost quite a bit of money, especially if it's new. You're going to have it for hopefully, man, maybe five, 10 years, but it's not really that huge of a commitment. So what if you're going to make even a bigger commitment? Like the second biggest commitment you're going to make in your entire life is who you're going to marry. The first biggest commitment is to follow Jesus. The second is who you're going to marry. And so how culture treats marriage and picking your spouse is, well, you got to try before you buy. How do I know if I'm sexually compatible with this person? How do I know that when we move in together that we're not just gonna bicker and fight and I'm not gonna learn all these things about her that I don't like? And so culture has this idea that, you know, it's really a really healthy thing. It prepares you for marriage to move in together before you're married. Is that true? 
Statistically, it's not true that those who do that end up getting divorced more, and here's why. Moving in together does not prepare you for marriage. It prepares you for divorce. Here's how. When you get married, you have one family and another family who gets to two families who get married, and they become one family. And they have two bank accounts, and it becomes one bank account. And they have two car payments, it becomes one car payment. They have two insurance policies, it becomes one insurance policy. When you are unmarried and you move in together, you're still two families with two bank accounts, with two different directions in life. And at any point, you know I can leave. And if you start out your relationship with knowing in the back of your head, hey, at any point that you make me unhappy or unsatisfied, I can get out of here. That's not the best way to start your marriage. That is not the way to jump into it. Now, moving in together prepares you for divorce. And so there's uh, this teacher I really like, and he shares this story about being in college. And in college, there was a young man who got married at 19. And he had never been with anyone other than his wife. They waited till marriage, and then they waited till marriage to be intimate with another, with one another. And then this young man's in college, and he's sharing with other students that this has happened, which in a college setting would be shocking. And so some of the other young men are kind of prodding him like, dude, how, how could you do that? Like, how could you just, you marry the first person that you, you're dating, you, you're, you, you've never been with anyone else? And here's what one of the students said, bro, how do you know that your wife's any good in bed? And the response was, I've never been with anyone else. How do I know she's bad? Isn't that the truth? Who likes to be compared the rest of their relationship? No way. It's far better to wait. It's far better to be married and have the, that relationship the way that God says that, we, God says that we should. So Paul says, no, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to accept this. We're not going to allow this to creep into the church and say, no, this is okay. This is what we're going to do. Purge him from among you. In verse three, Paul says, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. There's a heavy sentence, huh? You're to deliver this man to Satan. Wow. So he's this young this guy who's in the church. He says he's a Christian, but he refuses to live like a Christian. He has this alternate, alternative lifestyle that he's, he's flaunting that's incongruent with the teachings of Scripture. And so what should you do? What does Paul say we should do? Paul says the next time you have church, when the 50 and 60 of you are together, bring that guy up in front of the congregation, hand him over to Satan, and kick him out of the church. And you say, well, geez, that sounds really cruel. Well, I got three names right now. If you guys can come up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was thinking, what's the most horrifying thing that could happen? That would be it, right? You say, well, that sounds really cruel. That's actually the really loving thing to do. The really loving thing to do would be to take someone who's so unrepentant in their sin that can't even see how it's sinful, can't even see that they're so celebratory in their lifestyle and what they're doing, the, the most loving thing you can do is to show them you have two options. There's repentance and there's discipline. If you repent, there's gonna be love and there's gonna be support and there's gonna be grace and there's gonna be mercy and there's gonna be people walking with you and meeting with you and encouraging you. 
And if the church doesn't push you away, the church is gonna pull you closer. And so handing someone to Satan is this. Jesus tells us that there's two kingdoms. There's nothing in between. There's Jesus and his kingdom, and there's Satan and his kingdom. And so you don't get the privilege and the right to continue to be in the church and to have Christians love you and to be in community with you and support you and encourage you and nurture you if you're gonna live a life of habitual sin that is unrepentant in nature. And so if you're not fit to be in the church, you have to leave the church. You don't wanna run with Jesus anyway, so just go run with Satan. He's the guy you really wanna be with. He's the guy that's affirming and supporting what you really ultimately wanna do, so why don't you go be with him for a little bit and see if that's what you really want. That's the prodigal son story. Go and enjoy the pigs, When you decide the pigs isn't actually what you want, come home. When the prodigal son comes home, what does he find? A dad that says, yeah, you should be back. Here's the steps you're going to have to do to come back into fellowship. No. What does he find? Grace, mercy, love, and support for the Christian who says, man, I've made a mistake. I need help. But for the the sinner who's celebrating in their sin is to say, you know what? You can't be here for a season. You're gonna to have to be outside of community. You're gonna be out, outside of support. The goal is not to destroy someone, but to destroy their desire for sins so that they come back humbly, ready to walk with God. And here's what's great. We learn this works. In 2 Corinthians, Paul's gonna talk about this guy has been accepted back into fellowship. So Paul was right. I mean, this isn't so cruel in nature that the guy goes, man, I could never come back. It's exactly what he needed so that he would come back humbly and live an obedient life to his Lord and say, yeah, maybe I have desires and passions and things I really want to do personally. What it means to follow Jesus is to say, I'm gonna put aside those things that I know are wicked and evil and choose to obediently follow Jesus. And I might struggle with those things totally. But daily, I have the opportunity to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, will you help me? Daily, I have the opportunity to come to other people I go to church with and say, man, I'm struggling with this. Can you help me out? This is not about the struggling sinner, the sinner who keeps blowing it, who's heartbroken about it, who's like, man, I can't believe I keep messing up. This is talking about the habitual, ongoing, unrepentant patterns of a celebrating sinner. This person is dangerous. He's a sexual predator. He's creating problems. He's unrepentant. And Paul says, you're not welcome back until there's some repentance. And so verse six, Paul addressing the church says, you're boasting is not good. You inviting this in is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Because the argument could be, hey, it's just this one family, right? We know them. We don't tell everyone they can do that. We tell them if they change. Just this one family, we let them hang. No, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, don't you know that a little bit of sin is gonna go a whole long ways? That the Jews would know from Passover that they had a tradition that they would do. Every year on Passover, they would cleanse their entire home of of all the leaven, They would get rid of all the filth, all of the stuff so they could be clean and holy and pure to worship the Lord. And what Paul is saying here is because Jesus has put your sin to death, you and me are supposed to put our sins to death. 
Because Jesus has made you holy, you must be constantly in a state of cleaning up your life to acknowledge your sin and live repentantly. The problem is when you don't do that, when you allow a little bit of sin in, it spreads. My aunt has this saying with her daughters because they want to watch movies that are PG-13 or R, and she has young daughters, middle school daughters. And they'd say, she'd go, well, what's in the movie? They go, well, it says on the back and focus on the family says, in one scene, it has this, and that's why it's PG-13. But it's just one thing. And so my aunt would say, okay, well, I'll tell you what, for the movie night when we watch that, I'll make brownies. And I'm just gonna put a little bit of poop in the brownie mix. How much poop is too much poop in your brownies? Any amount of poop is too much poop. And that's her point, is if you have any amount of that, it's too much. You should be repulsed by that movie and go, guy, I don't wanna watch any of that movie because it's got that thing in it that ruins the whole movie. You got poop in the brownie mix. Paul is saying, don't you know a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? That sin, when it's, when it's tolerated, when it becomes accepted, it spreads like a cancer. It doesn't stay quarantined. It doesn't stay fixed. It will spread and it will get out of control that that young man and that woman will meet with other believers and say, oh no, you can do whatever you want. That's how grace works. You just do whatever the heck you want. God's totally cool with it. And then their buddies will believe that and they'll spread it. And then all of a sudden you have this lifestyle that's completely contrary to the gospel that starts to spread amongst your church. Paul says, we can't have that. We can't have that anywhere, let alone a church in a place like Corinth that has to be at war with society and with culture around it. That Christians, the call for Christians has always been the same. That how God has called the Israelites, he's called them to be a contrast community. The Israelites, God wanted them to look so different as black to white, completely contrasted from the Israelites to the Canaanites were supposed to be black to white difference. The way they treated each other, the way they treated their spouse, the way they raised their kids, a completely contrasted community from how the world does life. That's how Christians are supposed to be. That when non-believers come into the church, they're supposed to go, I can't believe how different this is. How encouraging they are, how they love each other, how I want this, how do I get this? How do I get accepted into this? What are the steps I need to do? What do I need to memorize? What, what part of the, and then to hear, all I have to do is believe, that's crazy. And then to hear other people's testimonies and confirm that, that's what's supposed to happen. But if we look the same as culture, why do people want that? They won't. Because it doesn't work. Jesus says there's only two kingdoms. There's his kingdom and there's Satan's kingdom. If you have someone who really wants to live for Satan's kingdom, hand him over to Satan. Satan can have him. And when he's enjoyed that and found out that doesn't give him the life that he wanted, he can come back into fellowship with believers. That sin, if it's excused and accepted, it won't remain quarantined. It will spread amongst everyone. So verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
Purge the evil person from among you. Christians are notorious at expecting more from non-believers than we do from believers, aren't we? It's so funny, like, you, you can be talking with someone and, oh, you're gay? Oh, we can't be friends. But then you go talk to a Christian, oh, you're a Christian and you're unrepentant and you have a lifestyle of sin? Oh, brother, I understand nobody's perfect. Paul's saying that, that doesn't work. No, Paul says, no way. For those outside the church, they're supposed to be like the younger brothers in the prodigal son story. That, man, I long for you to come home. I long for you to come and come into the father's house. And in the father's house, there's rules. Like in any good dad's home, there's rules. If you're gonna live here, here's what we're gonna do. That you can't keep living with the pigs if you're gonna be here. But when the, when the prodigal son comes home, is he all washed up and clean? He still smells like pigs. He's filthy. He's gonna need someone to help him. He's gonna need someone to walk with him. He's gonna need someone to encourage him. Paul is saying, when I told you guys not to associate with the sexually immoral, I wasn't talking about everyone else who lives in Corinth. I was saying, for those in the body, knock it off. Stop living that way. And if you're gonna persist unrepentantly in living in this way, then enjoy that for a season. Go live with the pigs and come home when you're ready. And we'll walk with you and show you grace and love and mercy and kindness and walk with you in that. Paul says, no way. For the Christian, it's time to stop living in filth. And you can say, well, hold on. Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? There's two verses that all young Christians in Southern Oregon know by heart. They know every seed-bearing plant the Lord gave is good, which means I can smoke weed, and judge not lest you be judged, which means like, hey, don't talk to me about it, right? Those are every young Christian seems to have those ones on lock. I can get high, don't say anything to me about it. Is that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 when Jesus is talking about hypocrisy? That, hey, you can't judge anybody. Hey, you can't go and correct anyone. Because the story is this, that there's a man who's got a plank of wood in his eye. He's got a two by four in his head. And he sees his friend who's got a speck of dirt in his eye and said, hey, you got a speck in your eye. You need to correct that. Jesus says, no way. Judge not lest you be judged. What are you doing judging him? Well, you got a plank of wood in your head. Is Jesus saying then that you can never judge another believer? No, Jesus is saying the issue is hypocrisy. Jesus is saying, Go fix the two by four, get that removed from your head. Then you can come to the brother who's got a speck of a splinter in his eye and say, hey, that's gonna really hurt you. I know because I used to have a two by four in my eye. Let me walk with you. Let me help you. I can share, you how that, I can share with you how that totally broke up my family, how that hurt us, how that destroyed me. Let me walk with you in this. Jesus, that's how we're supposed to do it. That's not, oh, you're too, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we are supposed to sharpen each other, come along each, aside each other. Something that blows my mind about the church is this. What gets us to all come together here? Because it's not that we all have the same interests or hobbies. We don't watch the same TV shows, not all of us. We don't participate in the same things. We don't have the same idea of what success is. We don't have the same goals for our kids. What unites all of us? It's not ethnicity. It's not age. We all come together for one thing. We want to obediently follow Jesus as Lord and talk about him and learn about him and come into community and fellowship with people who have the same Lord. 
And so when you get a group of people together, you're going to have people from all sorts of different backgrounds who are raised completely differently than you, who are raised to think that certain things were okay to say to your spouse and certain things weren't okay to, to say to your spouse, that certain ways to handle money is okay or is not okay. And so what happens when you get a group of people from all those different backgrounds together, you're able to sharpen one another. And you're able to say, hey, man, I don't know about that. I get that you were raised that way. I get that that's how your dad always showed you that that's the way that you treat a woman. But I think maybe there's a better way. I think that maybe that's not what Jesus has for you. And you're able to sharpen one another and build each other up and you're able to grow. And so for us, as we end this chapter, the calling for the church, for you and me, is the same as it's always been in the entire Bible, that we're supposed to be a contrast community. We're not supposed to look like the way that culture looks. We're supposed to be something completely other and completely different. Because what the world has doesn't work and it doesn't, what the world teaches will make you happy and will make you fulfilled and will bring you joy and will make your, it doesn't work. It always burns everybody out. It always leaves people destroyed because it's the enemy's kingdom. And his goal is always to steal and to kill and to destroy and he's really good at what he does. And the believer is supposed to be living a contrasted life to that, that we're not supposed to be a product of our culture. Just because culture allows something into their home does not mean that we need to allow something into our home, that we're not supposed to be of this world. The Bible says that you and I, our citizenship is in heaven and that we come into things in this world. Our position is supposed to be that we're an ambassador for Christ. And what ambassadors do is they take the traditions and they take the habits and they take the culture of their kingdom, their faraway land, and they bring it to the place that they're currently living in. That's what an ambassador does. That you and I are supposed to take the traditions of heaven and bring them here, which is, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's turning the other cheek. It's blessing those who curse you. It's forgiving. It's being ex ex exceedingly generous. It's doing all these things the world says, man, you can't do that. No, no, I'm an ambassador of my kingdom that my God, Jesus, has a different way of doing things. I'm supposed to be living that out every single day to show all of my neighbors and my family and my friends, that's the life I really want. And the fruit that's gonna come of that is gonna bring people to say, whatever God you have, that's the God I want. That's the God that I need. We're called to be ambassadors. And so if you've been a celebrating sinner living in this pattern of unrepentance and disobedience, today is the time to change. That being a Christian is not a call to affirmation, it's a call to obedience to Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're not a celebrating sinner, but you're a suffering sinner, you're in great company because we all are. And you should never feel like I have this secret sin and I can't tell anyone about it because they're going to kick me out. No way. If your sin breaks your heart, if you go, man, I cannot believe I keep doing this. You're in good company and you're with a bunch of people who want to encourage you and walk with you and help you as we all pursue Jesus to the best of our abilities. We need each other. If you're a celebrating sinner, man, we'll call you up on church and you shouldn't be here. That for a season, you should go enjoy that life that you think you should enjoy. 
Be with the pigs. Be outside of covenant relationship with the Lord. And it always will end with you being hungry and disappointed and outside of community. And the hope, the goal is not to destroy you. The goal is that you would return to the Father. And the Father will have open arms and the community of Christ would grab you with grace and love and kindness and forgiveness as you're repentant and we're able to walk out this life following Jesus together. So Jesus, I pray today that as we read a really hard chapter, that we would be encouraged that we have a God who wants the best for us. And we would know that sin always leads to hurting others and hurting ourselves and hurting you. And it never leads to the best. So Jesus, give us the courage, give us the strength to follow you in obedience, to acknowledge you as Lord. To declare what you say is right is right, and that's what I'll do. And what you say is wrong is wrong, and that's what I'll refrain from. Even if culturally, even if with my background, even with my desires, I don't agree. Help me to follow you in obedience. Jesus, thank you for your word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. And sometimes it pokes and prods us and cuts us in ways that makes us uncomfortable, but that's good. So Jesus, on our way home, may we think about your word and how we're supposed to walk this out. Help us to be a contrast community that's different from culture, that's different from the rest of the world. Help us to be the kind of people that others would want to come to and know about the king that we follow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.